from Psalm 73. Truly God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the boastful, when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pangs in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than heart could wish. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue walks through the earth. Therefore his people return here, and waters of a full cup are drained by them. And they say, How does God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly, who are always at ease. They increase in riches. Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been plagued, and chastened every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their end. Surely, you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought to desolation, as in a moment they are utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so, Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. Thus my heart was grieved, and I was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel, and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For indeed, those who are far from you shall perish. You have destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God, that I may declare all your works. This ends the reading of Psalm 73. Greetings from our deck overlooking Lake Nojiti. It's with mixed emotions that I come before you this morning to share with you this message. It's good to be with my KUC family again after quite some time, but as a pinch hitter for the person who was originally scheduled to give the message this morning, I also feel a twinge of sadness. Pastor Chuck was scheduled to give another message from his hospital bed, but as you all know, he passed on from this life into the next to be with his Lord and Savior almost a month ago now. It's only natural for us to grieve in the face of such tragedy and to ask, why did someone like that, who did so much good for so many people, have to die so young? The problem of evil 
that we is something that we've been dealing with from uh, the dawn of history. And it's quite clear that there is no easily understood satisfying answer to this dilemma. That doesn't mean, however, that the, that the Bible doesn't give us any answers at all. It is just that this is one area of life that must always contain an element of mystery. What I would like to do this morning is to look at this question from the standpoint of the entire Bible, to learn what we can about this difficult problem. The dilemma we must somehow deal with is how to explain all of the unspeakable horrors we see and hear about on the TV news every day, and at the same time believe in an all-powerful, loving God. In my studies on the history of science, I learned that it was this very question that was the chief stumbling block to the Christian faith for Einstein. His studies of the universe had convinced him that the, a creator God must exist, but he ended up denying the God of the Bible because no one gave him a reasonable answer to this question. The net result was that Einstein ended up envisioning God as an impersonal, distant force that isn't involved in our lives in any personal way. Why do good people so often suffer? And equally troubling, why do evil people often prosper? These questions pose the dilemma that either God is good and cannot do anything about these apparent injustices, in which case God is not all-powerful, or on the other hand, God can control these things but chooses not to, which would thus seem to imply that God is not really good. Likewise, if we believe that God is truly involved in the details of our lives, we are faced with the dilemma that the degree to which God is involved in the details of our lives for good would seem to require that it, is, that it also be the degree to which God is involved in the details of our lives for evil. Now, in a message such as this, I would not be so presumptuous to suggest that I'm going to sort this problem out for you into a, a neat little system that would enable you to discern the causes involved in each case of suffering. That is far beyond anybody's ability to understand. Likewise, as we turn to the Bible for answers, we must also recognize that the complexity of Scripture. The Bible's formula for salvation is simple and easily understood, but the Bible as a whole is not simple. <clears throat> it takes a great deal of prayerful study to understand the whole counsel of Scripture. I would, however, like us to get an overview of how the scriptures handle this thorny problem of suffering and divine justice. To help us picture the debate on this issue, let's imagine a discussion going on between various biblical characters. The 66 books of the Bible were written down by some 40 different authors from different cultural settings over a time span of well over 1,000 years. That in itself is an amazing thing when you consider the internal consistency and unity of these diverse books. But as a thought experiment, let's imagine the main characters of the Bible all sitting around a table discussing this weighty issue. The discussion itself, of course, is chaired by Jesus himself. And around the table are Moses, David, Elijah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and, and other Old Testament characters. Also, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Peter, and Paul head up the 
contingent from the New Testament, and they are all discussing this issue. Before we go into the details of the debate, however, we first need to realize that this discussion takes place in the cultural context of the ancient Near East. Central to the worldview of that day was the belief that the highest values of life, namely health, long life, social standing, numerous children and wealth, were achieved through service and worship of the various gods. The choices were clear to the ancients. If you wanted to have these things, then you had to obey the gods. Because if you disobeyed the gods, you would have sickness, a short life, no children, and be poor. This is the cultural context in which the biblical stories take place. First, let's look at how Moses speaks about covenant faith in that cultural context. At many points, of course, Moses takes strong exception to what can be found in that cultural context, namely the worldview of the ancient world. Inspired by God, he challenges this concept of a myriad of gods and who they really are. He also strongly objects to the way people tried to relate to God through magical incantations instead of trusting and faithful obedience. This same mindset is prevalent even today in religions around the world, uh, namely that we can manipulate God through rituals and prayers to give us what we want. With these and other matters in the cultural environment, Moses takes strong exception. But when it comes to the question of the consequences of obedience and disobedience to God, Moses expresses himself almost identically to his ancient Middle Eastern neighbors. All through the book of books of Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, where Moses' dealings with the people of Israel are recorded, we find Moses telling us that the consequences of obeying or disobeying the covenant are in terms of immediate concrete blessings or curses we experience in this life with little or no delay. These blessings and curses of the covenant may be spiritual in expression, but they are experienced in terms of health, fertility, longevity, national and personal peace, personal peace and prosperity, etc. When we look at the rest of the Old Testament, it becomes immediately obvious that this viewpoint forms the foundation upon which most of the Old Testament thought is based. In the context of this biblical roundtable, this concept uh, we could call the majority report. Over against this majority report, however, is what we might call the minority report, which challenges this notion that if you are righteous, you'll automatically be blessed, and if you do evil, you'll automatically suffer for it in this life. For instance, as the story of Joseph in Genesis unfolds, it becomes clear that there are many reasons why people would, would suffer. As a young man, Joseph was obnoxiously boastful of his dreams, causing his older brothers to be very jealous of him. This led to his being sold by his brothers into slavery in Egypt, where he languished in prison until some highly unusual circumstances resulted in him becoming the prime minister of Egypt, second only to the pharaoh in power. So we see that suffering may be the result of our own brash and sinful ways, but that it may also be caused by other people's wicked choices. 
The reasons we suffer may indeed be complex, a combination of several reasons, often beyond our control. Joseph's experiences also show that even through evil circumstances, God works mysteriously behind the scenes to work out his own redeeming purposes. As Joseph said to his brothers many years later, You plotted evil against me, but God turned it into good in order to preserve the lives of many people who are alive today because of what happened. Thus, with passages such as this right in the middle of the covenant story, a story in which this clear cause and effect connection between sin and suffering and between obedience and blessing is laid out, we have this much more sophisticated understanding of suffering. Against this majority report, Job also speaks out, making his points count. Job simply refutes this simplistic notion that there is a direct connection between the kind of person you are and what happens to you in this life. Job's three friends come at him from the standpoint that his suffering must be due to something Job himself did. But Job implores them to look at the evidence. The many examples where obviously evil people have prospered and have not been punished, at least in this life anyway while others, such as himself, have suffered severely while leading exemplary lives. So the book of Job rejects this direct link between one's character and one's circumstances in life. And Job raises the possibility of seeing suffering as redemptive, serving some higher purpose rather than just a comfortable life on earth. Our physical lives are short compared to the eternity of heaven. And Job always keeps that perspective in mind. <clears throat> he stresses how important a belief in an afterlife is to enduring suffering in this life. Nevertheless, he doesn't shy away from making his complaints known to God. One message we get from the book of Job is that we can and should be honest with God about what, ha about what re we're really feeling, and not just mouth the pious platitudes others think we should be saying. We can speak to God as we are and not as others think we ought to be. We can speak to God in our suffering, even have feelings of anger towards God, for he understands. Another point Job brings up is that of a mediator to plead before God on behalf of individual humans. Somehow, Job senses that he will be justified in the end, and he cries out his great statement of faith, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last he will stand upon the earth. Though Job couldn't have fully fathomed what that really meant, it turned out to be a prophecy of the coming Redeemer, Jesus, who would stand in the gap between God and humanity, providing the way of salvation. Likewise, Job points out his discovery, his discovery that his suffering did not mean that God had abandoned him. It was only his inability as a finite creature to really comprehend his situation. He could see things only from the very limited perspective of his human life and thus was not able to see the whole picture as that would necessitate, necessitate understanding what was going on in the spiritual realm something he could not do, nor can we. All these points Job raises adds a great deal of force to the minority report 
at the roundtable discussion. Next, Isaiah enters the discussion. Isaiah 53 depicts God's servant as suffering innocently, not for his own sin, but because of the sins of others. And it is not simply because of their sins, but for their sins that he suffers. The idea is plainly put forward that one could suffer redemptively on behalf of others. This, again, was a prophecy fulfilled completely in the life of Jesus. This principle also was lived out in the life of Jeremiah, another of the great prophets of the Old Testament. Jeremiah's message was based in the language of the book of Deuteronomy, which formed the basis of the majority report, namely that if you obey the covenant, then you will be blessed, but if you disobey the covenant, you will be cursed. But what happens to Jeremiah himself? He complains, God, every time I preach for you, they throw me in the dungeon. And how does the book end? The poor man is dragged off to Egypt and never heard from again. It seems rather inconsistent, doesn't it? Jeremiah himself certainly was faithful to the covenant, but one could hardly consider him blessed in this life. And so we see that the life of Jeremiah adds to the experiences of Job to further add weight to the minority report. The editors of the book of Psalms include a few poems that also speak of the, for the minority report. For example, there is a problem of someone who has been chronically ill for many years. This suffering, then, is often compounded by people telling you that if you're sick, it might, must mean that you have done something wrong, that you have been sinful or something. Our scripture reading from Psalm 73 is one of, the, of several that raise the issue of the plight of the chronically ill. In this psalm, the psalmist looks around and says, God, I have a problem. I'm the good guy, but my family is in poverty and, and we're often sick. God, where are you? And God, do you see that pagan on the other side of town, that foul-mouthed, violent cheat? Look at the grand, the grand house he lives in and how healthy and beautiful his wife and kids are. And they're always putting us down. God, where are you? It just doesn't make sense. Then he goes into God's temple, and there he sees the situation more clearly. He sees enough of what eventually happens to the wicked that he retains his faith. He sees how precarious life really is, and even for the rich and, and the arrogant. He sees himself more clearly, how his own jealousy colored the way he had looked at life. He also gets insight into the journey beyond this life, and he affirms, What else do I have in heaven but you? Since I have you, what else would I want on earth? My mind and my body may grow weak, but God is my strength. He is all I ever need. We, too, will not live very long before we will find ourselves in situations where we will have to either affirm or deny this same point, namely, God, you are all I ever need. At some point, we all have to get off the fence and make up our own minds. Perhaps the most powerful voice for the minor minority report is Kohelet, the philosopher who writes the book of Ecclesiastes. He flatly denies that there is any kind of direct connection between who we are and what happens to us. 
He says we can no more tell what God thinks of us by what happens to us in daily life than we can read tea leaves. Of course we are in the hands of God, he says. But whether God loves us or hates us, who can tell? How would we really know if God loves us? We surely can't tell by what happens to us. How would we know if God hates us? We can't tell that either. So the writer of the book of Ecclesiastes seems to abandon all connection between the kind of persons we are and what happens to us in this life. Nevertheless, he concludes with these words. So remember your Creator while you are still young. Have reverence for God and obey His commands, because this is all that we were created for. God is going to judge everything we do, whether good or bad, even things done in secret. Thus the Minority Report cries out for the New Testament, and indeed forms a kind of bridge to the New Testament. So in our Biblical Roundtable thought experiment, this is where Jesus takes over the discussion where he in effect sides with the Minority Report. In Luke 13, someone poses the question to Jesus about the Galileans whom Pilate had killed when they were offering sacrifices to God. Jesus answered them, Because those Galileans were killed in that way, do you think that proves that they were worse sinners than all the other Galileans? No, indeed. And I tell you that if you do not turn from your sins, you will all die as they did. What about those 18 people in Siloam who were killed when the tower fell on them? Do you suppose this proves that they were worse than all the other people living in Jerusalem? No, indeed. And I tell you that if you do not turn from your sins, you will all die as they did. Later, his disciples asked about a man blind from birth. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And again, Jesus said, neither. Jesus teaches them that you can't process these kinds of events in terms of who sins so that such and such happens. He tells us that we must see things from the larger context, the context of the purposes of God and his glory in this world. Even more striking is Jesus' call to discipleship when he says, if any of you want to come with me, you must forget yourself, carry your cross, and follow me. Jesus wore the cross and suffered, and if we're to follow him, how do, you, how do we suppose that we will avoid all suffering? Mark makes this issue a major point of his gospel. He centers his account of, the, of Jesus on the cross and says that you cannot understand God or Jesus if you try to avoid the suffering involved in the cross. It is only at the cross that you can truly understand Jesus. Thus, all approaches to Christian discipleship that somehow attempt to deny suffering or to do an end run around it miss the mark. They avoid taking suffering into account as a part of our experience in this life within the will of God. The apostles, who were the first in the grand gathering there to have experienced the fullness of God's revelation through the astounding life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, they now enter the discussion. In answer to the author of Ecclesiastes and his assertion that we can't really know whether God loves us by what happens to us, they respond with a, yes, but. They stake their claim in the cross of Jesus. How do we know God loves us? 
not by whether we are blessed in the sense of avoiding suffering. Likewise, it's not because we have been fortunate enough to not have experienced natural disasters demolishing our property or war ravaging our families. How do we know God loves us? Because God met our deepest need in delivering us from sin and bondage. How do we know God loves us? The apostles always take us back to the cross. John says in his first letter, This is what love is. It is not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the means by which our sins are forgiven. Paul then echoes this in his letter to the Romans. There is nothing in all creation that will ever be able to separate us from the love of God, which is ours through Christ Jesus our Lord. So the biblical roundtable on suffering and divine justice leaves us with a somewhat unsettling conclusion. In some ways, the majority report seems more just from the standpoint of our human understanding. If you do good, you'll be blessed. And if you do evil, you'll be punished. You reap what you sow. Another biblical phrase. And certainly, in many areas of life, we know this to be true. That is the very basis of our system of laws and government. One is rewarded for hard work, and if you are caught breaking laws and harming others, you will be punished. So clearly, the winning out of the minority report over the majority report in the biblical roundtable is no call to live for oneself, as though what happens to us is not related to how we live life. No, we are called to do good and to lead righteous lives. We may not receive rewards for the good we do in this life, and indeed we may even suffer for it, but we will have rewards in heaven. Now, I don't pretend to know what that entails in concrete terms, but I do know that it is a comfort to have that promise. No, the answers to the problems of suffering and evil are not simple. The main problem with the simplistic majority report was that its formula was limited to blessings and curses in this life, which has been shown to be patently false. And yet, when viewed from the standpoint of eternal life in heaven, that is, when our rewards in heaven or lack thereof are entered into the equation, then we can see how these two viewpoints actually come together. At any rate, the minority report concludes with the apostles saying that God isn't just with us, as Job eventually discovered, but that he is also for us. He cares for us even as we suffer. And he will, in his own good time, work in and through our sufferings for his good purposes. We will, we will lead us, uh, he will lead us to the, that day when we know that God is just and that our faith is, has not been in vain. That's the good news of the gospel. And it's no end run around the problem of evil. There will always be some mystery involved in life, but we can still go on in the confidence that God is always with us. And as we give our lives and minds to follow him, he will accomplish his purposes in us, even in our suffering. So we will do well to stake our faith in the cross and to know that God is for us that God loves us, and that Jesus died and rose again for us. I'd like to close with a well-known poem called Footprints. It's one that many of you are familiar with, but it is so appropriate for a time like this, particularly as we think of Pastor Chuck. 
One night, a man had a dream. He dreamed that he was walking along the beach with the Lord. Across the sky flashed scenes from his life. For each scene, he noticed two sets of footprints in the sand. One belonged to him and the other to the Lord. When the last scene of his life flashed before him, he looked back at the footprints in the sand. He noticed that many times along the path of his life, there was only one set of footprints. He also noticed that this happened at the very lowest and saddest times in his life. This really bothered him, and he questioned the Lord about it. Lord, you said that once I decided to follow you, you would walk with me all the way. But I have noticed that during the most troublesome times in my life, there is only one set of footprints. I don't understand why, when I needed you most, you would leave me. The Lord replied, My precious child, I love you and would never leave you. During your times of trial and suffering, when you only see one set of footprints, it was then that I carried you. As we walk through life, we too may go through periods of suffering, perhaps seemingly more than we can bear. But let us remember that God is with us all the way and that in the end our faith will not have been in vain. I'll close with the words of Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firm to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Always remember that you are his. You were bought with a price, the precious blood of Christ Jesus on the cross. May God bless you, each one of you, as you endeavor to follow him. <music>